Hello and welcome to ASTCT Talks, the official podcast of the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. We chat with industry leaders from all areas of the blood and marrow transplantation and cellular therapy field, including doctors, physician assistants, pharmacists, nurses, administrators, social workers, and more. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of ASTCT Talks. My name is Misty Evans. I'm an associate professor at Vanderbilt University School of Nursing, and I'm a nurse practitioner at Sarah Cannon Pediatric Transplant and Cellular Therapy Program at TriStar Centennial in Nashville, Tennessee. I would like to give a big thanks to uh, Janssen Oncology and Legend Biotech for supporting us today. And I'm very excited to have the opportunity to talk to my APP colleague, Flora Stondell today. Flora is, an, is the Advanced Practice Provider Supervisor for the Malignant Heme Cellular Therapy and Transplant MPs and PAs at UC Davis Health in Sacramento, California. Flora, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ms. C and uh, ASTCT for giving me this opportunity um, for doing this podcast today. So Flora, first tell me just a little bit about your transplant cellular therapy program and also about your leadership role within the organization. Yeah, so um, UCD, uh, we are a NCI designated cancer center. Um, the other one is UCSF. Uh, we currently, you know, we split off into our own little division. So our program size is a little bit small. We do about um, 150 or more transplants and uh, CAR T cell therapies a year. Um, our physicians, we have six uh, physicians, um, hiring two more, um, and I currently oversee about 17 APPs um, and, you know, hiring two additional APPs. Um, my current leadership role within the organization is, you know, aside from overseeing our NPs and PAs, I also assist um, with uh, training of the new NPs and PAs and also our incoming HEMONC fellows. Um, I also help with the monitoring of our patient acuity and staffing, just to make sure that our APPs continue to provide high level care for our patients and lots of collaboration with our multidisciplinary team members to ensure that our workflow uh, processes continue to improve um, to help with our patients and their family members. Wow, okay, so you have a big role. So we have a lot to, to talk about, to touch on today, and you've brought up some of that, but I'm going to kind of start from the top of what kind of I had in mind. And first of all, there's just um, really a great deal of interest and important uh, discussions surrounding access to tr transplant cellular therapy. And I imagine that UC Davis is a referral center for CAR-T, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. We uh, receive a lot of referrals from other um, cancer centers. Uh, we see patients from in Reading, even near the Oregon border, and some a lot of our patients also come from Nevada. So yeah, we do get a lot of referrals. And then, so I'm just curious, what's the timeline from when the patient is identified or referred to, you know, for CAR-T until they're able to actually start the process? So usually after we receive the referral and insurance authorization, uh, we try to get the patients in no more than two weeks from the time that their physician uh, puts in the referral to us. Oh, good. Okay. And so then do you find that access is an issue sometimes for these patients? Yeah, it can be an access issue at times. Um, we are uh, one of the centers that takes uh, patients who have federally um, 
you know, funded insurance. So a lot of our patients are Medicare and Medi-Cal patients. The patients that we do have some issues with are patients with um, private insurances. Uh, so those patients, we do have some issues at times that is a barrier to getting them approved at UC Davis for their CAR T-cell therapy. And then do you think, are you mostly able to overcome these barriers or is there processes in place to help overcome those barriers? Most of the time we can. Um, a lot of times these insurance companies do ask us to perform peer-to-peer -peer reviews. Um, these peer-to-peer -peer reviews are uh, most of the time performed by the APPs or the transplant physician. And I would say that greater than 90% of the time we are able to you know, convince the insurance company to approve these patients to have their CAR T-cell therapy at UC Davis. There's a handful of patients that we do have to refer out to City of Hope or to other transplant centers. Okay. Well, um, you know, in that August episode of ASTCT Talks, Josh Epworth did a great job talking a little bit about um, CRS and neurotoxicity, post-CAR T, but also the management of infectious complications related to lymphodepletion and neutropenia in the outpatient setting. So I don't necessarily want to repeat um, that today. However, at the end of the session, Josh touched on something that I think is very important in cellular therapy, and which you have already touched on just a little bit in your introduction, is the multidisciplinary team. So I think our team members, nurses, pharmacists, social workers, administrators, everyone are all being asked to do more within their role. And our physicians certainly have many responsibilities while also caring for very complex patients. So I would just love to talk a bit about the value of APPs and other team members, the value that they bring to the care of patients receiving CAR-T. Um, so maybe you could just start by talking about the APP work model for pre and post CAR-T at your institution. Yeah, so, um, you know, when I first started about 10 years ago at UC Davis, there was only uh, one APP. Um, over the course of the last, um, you know, eight, nine years, we have hired a lot of NP, you know, NPs and PAs. Um, a lot of the NPs and PAs, we have uh, become the primary, um, you know, contact person for our nurses and our patients um, to manage patients pre during and post CAR T cell. Uh, we have a large group of NPs and PAs that are trained in the inpatient setting that are there um, to take care of the patients um, during their uh, you know, CAR T therapy. And also if there's any readmissions, um, it's the same group of inpatient APPs that care for these patients. Um, in the post CAR T setting, once they're discharged, um, we do have a set group of APPs that work closely with their primary attending to care for these patients as well, too. Um, and you are right, Misty, we, we do work very closely with our multidisciplinary team members. Uh, we work closely with our nurses at the infusion center and at our um, cellular therapy unit to provide um, you know, ongoing care for these patients, because some of these patients do need to be seen daily. Uh, so we work closely with them as well, too, and also with our pharmacy team to ensure that we are dosing medications correctly and there's no other drug interactions. Um, but yeah, the APPs, we are the, you know, primary uh, providers for these patients. I love how you said that whenever you started those like one APP, I think, and look at how much you've grown over time. Um, so I just am interested in like the model you have now sounds perfect. I love the team based model. I love working um, together, you know, with my physicians, you know, caring for our patients. 
um, and you know that shared model. So, have you always done it that way, though, or how did you? How did that evolve? No, um, we actually did not do it this way. Um, you know, in the beginning, uh, when we first hired our APPs, um, you know, of course, we were very new at having such a large group of APPs um, within the division. So, the first thing we started with, we actually cross-trained the NPs um, and PAs to work both in and outpatient. Um, because of that, we did get a lot of feedback from our patients, our nurses, and also our um, provider team. Um, and one thing that we kept getting back was that there was no continuity, um, that you know there was such an uh, influx um, and also exiting of like the APPs um, coming in and out of the inpatient and clinic unit that the, a lot of the patients uh, stated that they did not like that uh, there was no continuity. Um, so due to that input, um, we transitioned to this team-based uh, care approach where we do have a set group of APPs in the inpatient setting um, and also a set group of APPs in the clinic setting. Um, and in the clinic setting, the physicians do have a primary uh, NP or PA assigned to them and also a, a backup um, NP or PA that is assigned as well too in case their primary NP is or APA is on vacation or out. Um, so we do have this team-based care approach. Oh, that's great. And then have you seen that patients enjoy that? Um, have you gotten feedback from patients and families of satisfaction? Yes, we have. Um, a lot of all of our patients um, and team members have voiced that they do enjoy the continuity. Um, and not only that, um, our providers mentioned that it's just a lot better to, you know, be able to um, assess our patients, especially patients um, after CAR T-cell, just having the same face um, to see the same provider over and over again, it's, you know, becomes also like a safety um, because we're able to do um, accurate assessments of our patients. So if there's a minor change, we know um, because we know this patient and their family. So yeah, it's been positive uh, feedback from all, um, all team members and patients and family. I do think that's great. And I do appreciate what you're saying about not only the continuity of care and patient satisfaction, but also just the safety issue and um, just knowing your patients so well. So I, I do think that's great. I imagine that that work model could be hard to implement. So I'm thinking about our administrators and, you know, APP leads that, um, you know, are trying different work models. Can you tell me about the work model as far as, you know, the hours and the inpatient, outpatient hours and holidays and weekends? Because I know there's always a lot of interest surrounding that um, whenever we come together at conference and such to talk about those issues. Yeah, so um, previously, um, all of our APPs were working um, eight hours a day. Um, we have this, uh, you know, 80 hours per pay period, which is every two weeks. Um, but due to, you know, just not uh, enough coverage specifically for the inpatient setting, because the NP um, and PA would start their workday at eight o'clock and, you know, in eight hours later, it wasn't very good patient coverage. Um, so after speaking with the APP group um, and also reaching out to other um you know, other colleagues, uh, we did make a big change, um, you know, with the shift. So currently our clinic APPs work um, 10 hours um, a day and they work four days a week. There are no weekends or holidays that they cover. Um, and our inpatient APPs, they currently work uh, 12 hours a day. Um, 
starting November, we will start our uh, swing shift coverage, which means that the APP will cover until 11 p.m. Um, and really, this is all to provide better continuity of care and also to be present um, for our nursing staff as well, too. Um, and to add the inpatient APPs, uh, we do uh, work weekends and holidays. Oh, perfect. And that's and so you have great coverage then. That's that's great. And I love how you talked about being there for your nurses as well, because, um, you know, it's just important to have for the nurses to have people identified that they can go to, you know, for that patient that's not doing well, for instance, or you know, the very complex patients. Do you find that your APPs, um, did this bring any like, better work-life balance or do they enjoy those hours? Oh, definitely. So alongside the coverage um, for our patients and the nurses, another thing that we took into account was the work-life balance for our NPs and PAs. It was a big driver and a big factor as well, too, to make this change. Um, a lot of our NPs and PAs, um, I mean, I would say probably all of them are very happy uh, with this with this new change in their uh, work and clinic schedule. I love that. And um, any other insight on how APPs maybe support the program in other ways through education or any, I don't know, procedures or anything like that? Yeah, so um, currently our APPs, um, the majority of them, you know, have become, I would quote, more senior NPs. Um, so we do, uh, you know, help with training and assisting with the incoming HEMONC uh, fellows. We get about three to four new um, fellows a year. So we do help, you know, with education and, and training these fellows. Um, at UC Davis, all of our um, advanced practice providers perform all of the procedures. So we perform our, all of the bone marrow biopsies and aspirations. Um, lumbar punctures, um, any intrathecal chemotherapy, we um, do all of those. Uh, previously, we were also assisting with the um, infusion of stem cells uh, to our uh, autologous stem cell transplant patients. Um, we are still helping with that as well, too. Um, and about a couple of years ago, we started a, a HEMONC fellowship program at UC Davis for advanced practice providers, um, which uh, start with us um, January through February. And these are already graduated NPs and PAs that want to specialize in oncology. And our APPs um, precept these uh, NPs and PAs uh, during their fellowship. Wow, that sounds great. And that is a great opportunity for an APP fellowship. I do, uh, um, working on the university side as well, I do hear that lots of nurse practitioner students as they exit, you know, their their master's program or their DMP program becoming advanced practice providers, many of them look for fellowships. And, you know, we just don't have as many for advanced practice providers in the pediatric world and pediatric transplant. There's just, um, you know, a few out there that I'm aware of. And I don't think there's even that many probably in the adult world either, but um, do you find that this has been a success and do you find that people have, you've had a lot of interest in this? Yeah, we have. Um, we are, uh, let's see, we're on our second year now and we have hired the first two um, APP fellow. Um, they currently joined us on the malignant heme uh, inpatient service. So we are happy that to say that we were able to keep them and they were happy with us. So we, we hired them and 
our current fellow is actually wanting to stay with us as well too. So we're very hopeful and happy that he applied and we're hoping to get him to join our team as well too. So yes, it's been a great success. Oh, wow, that's great. So they're coming to you really trained well already, pretty much ready to hit the floor running, <laughs> even though, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's great. And I'll, it'd be interesting to see if more of these programs, um, you know, kind of surface because it gives that more specialized training for certainly this complex and specialized care that we're doing as well. So uh, that's great. It's great for your program. Moving on just a little bit though, what about um, thinking about like education resources? What type of education resources do you have for, you know, the patient coming and families coming for CAR-T? And do you feel like most of these patients have a good understanding of the treatment plan? Sometimes, um, you know, everyone comes with a different, at a different level. And I know sometimes education is different, you know, from caregiver to caregiver and patient to patient. Um, but I'm just curious what, what resources you guys have. So um, we do have, so a lot of our education, um, or actually all of our education starts the day that they come for their consultation. Um, when the patient is referred to us, they are automatically assigned um, a transplant nurse coordinator. Um, they are with this transplant nurse coordinator from their day of consultation uh, to post-CAR-T. Um, and education really starts with the patient and their family members um, the day that they come in. Uh, we Even if they do have a primary oncologist, we like to follow up with these patients very closely. Usually we have them follow up with us about every two to three weeks just to ensure that we are in close communication with them. Um, uh, aside from the verbal communication that we do with them during these visits, um, we also provide pamphlets uh, for the patients and their family members. Um, and just to add in there, uh, one of the big things that we require our patients to have is when they are deemed to be eligible for CAR T-cell, we do require the patients to have a caregiver with them um, during their clinic visits that that will be also their voice and their ears. Because we found that a lot of our patients without this the second pair of you know ears for them, uh, you know, it's very overwhelming, and a lot of times they do you know forget what we tell them, or you know have um, you know forget to ask questions that that they you know were wanting to ask. So we do have you know make sure that these patients have a caregiver identified that will be with them from the start um, of their journey. And is that usually the same caregiver that's with them, you know, through the uh, admission and kind of post um, trans or post cellular therapy process? Yes. Yeah. We make sure that this caregiver can, you know, be with them from start to the, you know, from the start to the end, just to make sure that there is some consistency with the patient. And sometimes the patients do identify several caregivers um, because it's hard for the caregiver to take away, you know, from work, take off from work, um, you know, or, or their other, um, you know, responsibility. So we do at least have the patients identify, you know, a couple of caregivers that can be with them. So it sounds like that um, kind of that nurse or transplant or the, you know, the coordinator role is essential during this time period, just really identifying that caregiver, really making sure the expectations are clear and starting that education from the day one that you meet them and having that ongoing communication. Yeah, that is right. And, you know, and so far, you know, we don't have any issues, um, you know, if patients seem to understand by the time they are, you know, going in for their CAR T-cell, um, you know, they're very aware of, you know, the whole workflow, the whole process and what is expected of them after their discharge. 
So then moving on to their admission, how long are they admitted? And then, you know, once discharged, how frequently are they seen in that outpatient setting? So, um, we, you know, I'm happy to say we actually made a change recently before, um, you know, before the patients would be admitted for their prep regimen and throughout their CAR T, um, you know, stay. So they were in there for about two weeks. Um, but about a year and a half ago, we were able to work alongside our infusion center um, staff and patients get their prep regimen in the outpatient setting, which allows them to, you know, go home and come back. Um, and these patients do get admitted on day minus one of their CAR-T. And once they're admitted, they're typically there for at least seven days um, for their CAR-T, um, you know, uh, infusion and also post-CAR-T monitoring. And then do you find that most of them are able to stay outpatient through their whole preparative regimen or um, like, do you yeah. have to come in for toxicities or they pretty much do very well? Uh, during their prep regimen, they do pretty well. Um, the clinic APPs, uh, we see them in uh, the infusion center every day um, during their prep regimen, just to ensure that we, you know, touch upon any side effects or symptoms or any questions that they or their family members may have. And so far, we have not had any patients needing admission um, prior to day minus one. Well, that's great. And then once, um, so then once they're discharged and then they're seen in the outpatient infusion center um, and they're seen daily, are you guys open on the, the weekends for them to come in to be seen too? And then, um, and where are they seen or where are they seen? Yeah. So once they're discharged, um, the patients are seen daily until day 14 by our, our cellular therapy uh, unit, which is the outpatient unit. And these patients are uh, seen by transplant trained uh, nurses. Um, and aside from the nursing that sees them every day until day 14, these patients are also seeing uh, a, the APP at least two times a week um, by the APP. Um, and this two times a week follow up in the clinic, it varies depending on patients. If they are stable and doing well, then we do stretch the visits out to weekly and then every two weeks. But if they are not stable or not doing too well, then we do keep was seeing them at least two times a week by the um, provider. And then, um, so I'm assuming when they come in, so of course they're staying locally, do you have housing for them dedicated or is this just arranged through their insurance or, you know, uh, medical housing? So it depends on the patient's insurance, um, but we do have a contract with the Marriott um, Hotel that is right next door to the to the cancer center um, that gives a better rate for the patient. So a lot of our patients do stay there. The only thing is that there's not a lot of rooms um, with kitchenettes. So that does become a little bit of an issue at times. Um, but so far, you know, seems to do, you know, be okay. Um, some of our patients have also looked at the Airbnbs um, and they, most of them actually enjoy staying at Airbnb because it gives them more of like a homely feeling. Um, so that hasn't been too much of an issue currently that for patients that do have to stay within 45 minutes of UC Davis. And then how long do they stay in your area at UC Davis for those patients coming in from Nevada, different places that you were talking about? Um, when are they able to go back home? And then how do you, I guess, do you see them long term or just maintain contact with their primary hematology oncologist? How does that part work? So if they are stable, we usually discharge them back to their primary oncologist at about day plus 30. Um, 
And we really work with the patients as well, too, since some of them come from the Nevada region, which is about greater than four hours away. Um, these patients, we, you know, work very closely with the patient and also their primary oncologists who have close follow up. Um, if they cannot physically come over to UC Davis, we do have the option of doing televisits with them, which is either video visits or telephone. So we do, you know, stay in close contact with these patients. Um, initially, post-CAR-T, we, um, you know, communicate with their oncologists and also with the patients at least, you know, every two to three weeks. And and as the months go on, we stretch these visits out, um, but we do try try to, you know, at least get some updates from their primary oncologist, even, you know, six, eight months down, down the road from their CAR-T. That's great. And then are your APPs doing a lot of the telehealth visits afterwards as well? Yes. So um, we, the APPs, uh, we do perform a lot of the um, visits. Um, right now, we we typically see the patients at least two to three of their visits, and then the, they see the attending um, for one of the visits after their second or third visit. But yeah, we we do uh, perform most of the office and televisits with these patients. Laura, you've just given us great information today, and you've talked a lot about the multidisciplinary team, how important and integral every team member is into the success of caring for cellular therapy patients, transplants, CAR-T. So any words of wisdom, like, for example, I hear a lot of people in the smaller programs or those who are really just struggling to find the best workflow for providers, especially for advanced practice providers. Um, and I'm just wondering if you just have any words of wisdom with your experience. You've done a clearly done a great job and you're a huge asset to your org organization. So if there's anything you can bestow on others. Um, honestly, you know, when I first started, I, I didn't know what to do. Um, and what really helped me was being able to reach out to my other colleagues at other transplant programs. So, um, for example, uh, you know, when we were trying to change the um, patient inpatient cap on the number of patients um, and also learning about the the number of work hours for our APPs, I was able to reach out to other APPs from other transplant centers throughout the United States um, and was able to get a lot of input and feedback from our colleagues. So I would say to not be afraid to reach out and communicate with our APP colleagues because, you know, everyone's been very kind, um, you know, when I was needing help and assistance. So, so that's one big word of wisdom is to communicate and reach out to others. I do think that that is huge, just building that community across the country. I mean, we're all within working within this community of transplant cellular therapy and just being able to call upon each other is huge and learn from one another. So I appreciate that. And, but you've, you have given us such great information today. And I think information for everyone, for administrators, for nurse practitioners, for leaders, uh, for, of course, physician assistants as well, nurses. So um, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time. But I would like to finish off with just a couple of fun questions. And one being, if you could choose a superpower, any superpower, what would it be? I would like to fly. <laughs> I love that. Flying, flying would be great. My kids ask me this all the time. If I could fly, it would make me happy because I would not have to sit in traffic to get to work and to other places. So yes, flying. <laughs> well, you're busy, so that's that's that would be important and then or helpful. And then if you could win the lottery, what would you do? If you won the lottery, what would you do? And you can't say leave your work because they would <laughs> uh you don't want to tell them that on this. 
podcast because they would be lost without you, it sounds like. So what other things would you do? <laughs> well, if my work is listening to this, I would they know that I would never leave them because I just love I just loved my work and also my people too much. Um, so I will stay forever. Um, but if I won the lottery, um, the first thing I would do is, you know, help my family pay off all their loans so that they don't have to stress out and then just save and invest the rest in like having like a nice building, like a living space for our patients and their caregivers. Cause I know that's a, a big issue is um, not having enough space for them. And I know not, a lot of our patients don't have the funding, um, you know, to even pay for a nightly room at a hotel that we have a contract with, um, it's hard for people. So that would be something that I would love to do is pay off loans for my family, get a building built for my patients and the family and invest in, you know, and save the rest of my money so I can retire early to spend time with my family. Well, Flora, that's, uh, that's wonderful. And I love that as well. Um, having, taking that stress away from your patients and families whenever they are undergoing such, you know, complex and prolonged care, and they've been through so much already. And, um, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just take even that stressor away from them? So thank you, Flora. Thank you again. Thank you for all you do. And I know your team uh, appreciates and loves you as well. And thank you again to our listeners and to uh, Jansen Oncology and Legend Biotech for supporting us today. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of ASTCT Talks. Never miss an episode. Subscribe and provide reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about ASTCT, find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or visit ASTCT.org.